quick reminder, season two wrap up Thursday, 22nd of July, 2.30 p.m. We're going to be on Clubhouse. So download the app, get an invite from someone, reach out to us, let us know. We'll see you there talking to four of the most popular guests from the last season. Really looking forward to it. See you then. On with the episode. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Investment Uncut with Mary and Dan. Today, we're talking about investing like an endowment. Uh, joining us for that conversation is an investment committee member of the National Trust, Victoria Sand. Victoria, welcome. Thank you for having me. Victoria, we're so delighted you've joined us today. Could you start by giving the listeners a sense of your, I guess, your current role with the National Trust, but also any sort of previous roles that give you a good insight into how charity endowments invest? Yeah, so I've been on the investment committee for the National Trust for seven years now. And concurrent with that, I was on the executive investment team at the Wellcome Trust, which is the UK's largest endowment. They manage their portfolio in-house. The National Trust has a fully outsourced model. And I'm also on the financing investment committee of the Crop Trust, which is the UN-backed endowment that runs the global seed banks. So just a little bit of charity experience then. Yes. Yes. And for my day job, I work for the not-for-profit organisation, the Investor Forum, which helps investment managers engage with companies collectively and put stewardship at the heart of investment decision making. Oh, super. So many interesting angles there to get into later. Before we, before we get into all of that, why don't you tell us one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? So my bucket list ambition is to visit half of the countries in the world. And I'm, well, I was 60% of the way there before the pandemic hit. So I'm planning some epic road and rail tricks for when we can get back to traveling again to get those numbers up. You said road and rail. I guess you're being intentional there about carbon footprint and stuff, are you? Oh, there is. I did read your latest blog, Dan, about that and thinking about my carbon footprint and the guilt of traveling. Uh, But I love a road trip and epic rail journeys from the Trans-Siberian to interrailing around Europe in my youth. So keen to get the girls excited about that kind of thing. So, Victoria, should we get going with the sort of main topic for today? So what we've been asking all of our institutional investors first is, I guess, your sort of guiding philosophy or principles when investing for an endowment. What, what's the sort of key stuff that you think about? What gets overlooked? What's sort of driving the decisions? So I think where endowments differ from maybe pension funds or other investors is the mission and the values behind the organisation that owns the assets and having some alignment between what the trust itself is trying to achieve and how it can reflect that in its portfolio means that you're approaching investments from a slightly different angle. So starting off thinking about what you're trying to achieve, obviously, as all investors do from a risk return and a spend perspective, but then centering that on the impact that you want to have with your financial assets and making sure that those values are aligned all the way through from the investment committee to the investment managers that you choose to partner with and having the right governance structure around that so that decisions are taken at the right level, whether it's with an in-house team or with your investment committee. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because obviously a lot of conversations with more mainstream investors like pension funds recently have gone that way in terms of thinking more carefully about impact, thinking about governance, things like policies and beliefs. But I guess you're saying there's this whole you know, category of investors out there that have been doing that essentially for forever, really. 
yes, they've got to think about who owns these assets and what are we trying to do with them and making sure the investment portfolio doesn't undermine what the mission is trying to achieve. And in fact, can even empower that mission if it's being used as another lever for change. That was something I was really keen to explore, because as you were saying, the sort of alignment of the sort of the charitable aims and what the investments are doing, I sort of couldn't help but feel like there must have been times where that was a real challenge for you in terms of particular asset classes or particular ways, styles of investing, that sort of thing. Do you have any sort of examples where that happened and how you sort of overcame those sorts of challenges? Yeah, I think the most important thing is to know what you own, because investing in blind pools can often trip you up when it turns out that there's something in there that's quite embarrassing reputationally for any organisation. And really being really mindful of the index that you're investing with as well. I think that that can be quite an overlooked, oh, it's cheap, it's easy, we'll just put it there. But actually, there's a lot of things in the index that maybe you don't want to be invested in. And there are more index options out there now that can reflect your values and still give you the diversification of the low fees. Yeah, it's a really good point, isn't it? Because there's a temptation to say, oh, you know, it's it's 0.15% of the index, who cares sort of thing, right? Would be a sort of very high level perspective on a lot of these things. But th- I guess that isn't the way it works, is it? If that's something that really challenges the mission of the organization you're in and you really fundamentally disagree with, even if it's 0.15%, you're giving that company capital, which is an intentional decision. So it kind of does matter, doesn't it? And, and it, there's a lot of companies in an index, so very hard to stay on top of potentially. Yeah, yeah. And everybody's making these net zero commitments now and thinking about their own carbon footprints and how they can decarbonize and having an index that can balance towards those low carbon companies and rebalance over time to help you achieve that can be really important. In terms of making sure that those values are really being sort of portrayed through the investments that you make, clearly you've worked with some very, very large endowments where you are a very big investor and you can sort of effectively throw your weight around a little bit and insist on certain levels of reporting, certain levels of engagement, of stewardship, those sorts of things. Do you have any sort of views on how accessible that sort of approach is for perhaps smaller, still institutional, but smaller investors? Yeah, I think it's about investing with partners that you're aligned with from the outset. So rather than trying to change them to do what you want to do, find people who are doing this anyway And then they'll want to be on this journey with you. They'll be doing these kind of things and you're not asking them to do anything specific for you. I think there are more and more managers out there now whose ESG credentials are quite authentic and are willing to go on the same journey as their investors want them to do. And I think if you're aligned with them and you're having positive conversations, you're talking about the same things rather than trying to hit them with a big stick to get them to change. Going back to the point you made about beliefs translating into investment policy, if you like. I mean, how how easy has that been, you know, over the years? Because I, in one sense, endowments might have a clear mission, but I can imagine that each person in the room maybe has a slightly different take on what that means in practice. So it's maybe not as easy as you think to translate that into investment objectives, because there will be differences in how people want to see that coming through. Yeah, so I think writing it down and having a really strong belief statement is important so that you're not revisiting those same conversations over and over. So you can still have diversity in the room in terms of the challenge, but everybody knows what they're trying to achieve and why they're trying to achieve it. And it can take a while to pin those things down. But I think once you've decided, for example, that you do want the portfolio to be net zero over a certain period of time, every decision that you're making is going towards that belief that this is the right thing to do and that you all understand the consequences of those beliefs and are okay with that and have buy-in of that from all levels. 
Yeah, that's really important, isn't it? And, and it's certainly something we've seen helpful for some of our clients. And as Dan said, this is probably old news in the endowment space, but with, for example, pension schemes that are increasingly thinking about these issues that are just a bit more emotive than some of the issues they've discussed in the past. And I think as soon as you get into that sort of mindset, interpretations do seem to differ in a much more varied way than very simplistic risk and return, which most people can get alignment quite quickly. It's such a good point, actually, Mary, isn't it? Because emotive is the right word there. And, and I suppose one thing that, that a lot of investors grapple with is this sense that, oh, investing ought to be about risk and return and stuff in a spreadsheet. And suddenly you're introducing these other dimensions which don't fit so well. Whereas from what you're saying, Victoria, that's the sort of thing that endowments have been grappling with for a long time. So it, perhaps it doesn't feel as strange that one should be talking risk and return at the same time as values and, and those sort of things maybe do fit together more naturally. Or what is your perspective there? Is, is there always a bit of a dissonance there or, or does it work, do you think? I think endowments have thought about their purpose and their reason for being and have that kind of existential view of what they're trying to achieve. And they also have a very long-term perspective a lot of times. The National Trust is here for perpetuity forever for everybody. And so it can take that longer term view and sustainability is really important to its fundraising model, to its whole reputation. And so that is more aligned with all its stakeholder views. And so impact is really critical. Thinking about the years that you've been involved with endowments, Victoria, what would you say are some of the challenges that you've seen over time? What sort of things, I guess, haven't worked quite so well and how have you got past those? So I think if you don't know what's in the portfolio or there is a misalignment with the fund manager and you're just kind of holding your nose and going along with it because performance is really good and you know it looks okay from that perspective, I think that's when the embarrassing things can happen or the difficult decisions are there. And change can take a long time to come from a governance perspective as well, that if you have certain members of a committee wanting to achieve things and not everybody is making those same transitions at the same time, it can result in lots of difficult and frustrating conversations. And so I think moving at the same speed and recognising that change comes in small paces is something that I've learned over time, that you can't rush things. And I guess you started touching there on effectively sort of decision making in a board scenario. I guess what sort of tips would you have in terms of making effective decisions? You've, you've just mentioned one there, it's, which is a sort of trying to move at the same pace as each other and keep everyone with you. Have you got any, any other thoughts on making effective decisions? So the National Trust has just gone through a process of writing down our ways of working and making sure the right decisions are discussed in the right forum. So being really clear about what the trustees own and the big decisions that they need to be accountable for and what the investment committee needs to think about, what's material, what are those really important decisions. And then we've got two subgroups and I'm chair of the Stewardship and Engagement Committee, which just spends a lot of time talking to managers about the values and the engagement that they're doing and so we have delegated power to spend time and to really explore those issues and then the executive have decision making power on, on certain other things and so making sure the right decisions are taken at the right level is great for efficiency and it makes sure the right conversations are being had. Yeah I guess no one I don't think anyone gets massively excited by a discussion on terms of reference and those sort of things but that, that's sort of what you're getting at there isn't it I mean nailing that down is the starting point for all of that isn't it? Yes, making sure there's time for the important conversations, but not everybody needs to be in the room for all of those conversations. And playing to people's interests and passions, I think, is really important. Maybe I'm being harsh there. Maybe some people love terms of reference. Like, <laughs> am I just being lawyers and stuff and they get excited about it? I don't know. But I think that's also important, isn't it, just to make sure things don't fall between the cracks? Because as you said, Victoria, you want to play to people's strengths and interests and forcing a group to sit through something they're not interested in 
doesn't necessarily get you an effective decision because they're not engaged with that process. But equally, by the end of the meeting, no one's really engaged with the process because there's too many things on the agenda. So, yes, and we know it's important to keep an eye on performance. And so the reporting needs to be appropriate at that level. But we also want to make time for those longer conversations and sometimes separating those and having different people from the manager in the room is really, you know, gives you much better insight. Well, that's it, isn't it? That's what I was going to say. I mean, the difficulty I often find is just making the time for those bigger conversations because there's always an asset class that's going up or down. There's always a manager that's underperforming. There's always a team that's left or something. And there's always something going on that seems urgent to address. And and so I, it's hard, isn't it, to say, right, let's just stop and just talk about how we're structured, who's doing what, or you, you found that's worked okay? Yeah, so we spent a lot of time at the beginning making sure that these partners were really aligned, that we had confidence in them, that we understood what they were trying to achieve and then when things get a bit bumpy then we can have the conviction to say actually this is okay we don't need to be firefighting because we're long term these are our partners rather than someone that we're going to chop and change at any minute and so it kind of frees you from having to think about that if you've got that alignment at the outset. Victoria you mentioned when you're speaking to managers I think you said something about the different people at the manager sort of firm. I'm really interested in at what point you would want to speak to different members of the management team at investment managers and kind of why. So the stewardship and engagement working group like to speak to the the heads of stewardship, the heads of corporate governance, the people who are writing their stewardship code response and are making those kind of decisions. And I think demonstrating that clients are interested in those people, that this is a competitive advantage for the manager, that you know giving them airtime empowers them internally and allows you to have proper conversations with people which is different from what you have with the portfolio manager when they come to report on performance. So we do that and it's very much part of the due diligence process before you go in to make sure those resources are informed and credible and appropriate and aligned with you on both sides of the investment decision making and the stewardship teams. That's a great point that actually it's a sort of two-way street, right? So you've got the power as a very large institutional investor to invest in a way that's very sustainable if that's aligned with the the charitable aims, but also to empower people in the investment management firm so that they actually develop the right focus, which I don't think I'd heard it characterised like that before, but that's really powerful, isn't it? Yes, because one of the levers of change is obviously as a shareholder ourselves in companies, but we recognise that we're a long way away from the companies, that we're only a small shareholder, that actually the best person to make a voting decision is those people who make the buy and the sell decision. But we want to make sure that they are exercising those rights in the way that would be aligned with us had we got around to thinking about what we would want the decision to be. Yeah, that's the tricky bit, isn't it? Because it's about these sort of agency issues, you know, the sort of investment chain is is broken up into various different roles. And it's just trying to make sure each of those bits works and things translate properly rather than it just ending up as it's the manager's issue and people sort of shrugging their shoulders, but sort of getting that right. Yeah. And I think that alignment with the whole firm's philosophy is important rather than you just being in one product, because the voting tends to be done across the whole firm and your product might not get the same attention. Whereas if the management house actually believes in these issues and it's engaging across all its asset classes, it actually amplifies the power that we have as a shareholder because the fund manager is engaging on our behalf across all their assets. Yeah. And you must have seen a massive rise in importance over the last couple of years of these stewardship groups, right? Because a few years ago, we weren't really talking about that much in terms of, like you say, it's a competitive advantage for managers now, effectively. But a few years ago, people might have looked at you a bit strangely if you made that case. But I guess you've been talking it for years. So I mean, talk us through that change that you've seen in that over the last few years. Yes, it has. It's moved from the niche issue to mainstream to almost mandatory now, hasn't it? That everybody's thinking about it, they're being required to do it. 
And I think making stewardship a competitive issue, you know, having a market for stewardship is great, but managers still need to, to work collaboratively a lot of the time. And they do need to kind of make sure that they're not claiming that they did something when it was a group effort or pulling in a different way just to look different or voting against because they want to be able to say that they did. So I think it's important that people aren't doing it for show and that it is really integrated. And I guess for investors, it's looking through that data, having the conversation with the stewardship team to understand that it's not just for show, that it is to sort of drive positive change. Yeah, I see that all the time. I kind of it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because in so many of these things, it's the collective effort that makes the difference. Yet managers quite rightly want to innovate and want to show why they're better. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But those two things can be in a bit of tension at certain points. So I guess trying to find that happy medium. Yeah. So part of the investor forum is about giving them that mechanism to escalate so that when their own engagement has reached a dead end, actually calling in another 20% of the register to come behind you and say, we all want you to address this problem is much more powerful and effective. And that should be seen as a good thing for managers to be able to have that tool. Yes, absolutely. So apart from the, I guess we probably would call it a structural change in terms of the importance of stewardship teams within management firms. What other sort of structural changes have you seen over the years in terms of the way that endowments invest, I guess, asset allocation, types of investments, investment styles, those sorts of things? Has there been much change or is it fairly constant? So I think endowments for a long time have been with venture capital and private equity and have built up strong programs there. So that's less of a change. What I think is emerging is more impact funds and so more intentionality of where these private equity is are investing. And I think that's positive. Be aligned with the SDGs or particular outcomes, targeted outcomes in healthcare or education or other issues. And I suppose real assets would be another area where investors have been looking for a long time. But now what those real assets are doing and the impact they're having, being thoughtful about what timber means, what infrastructure funds might be doing, and much more capital chasing these inflation protecting assets as well. Yeah. And in terms of the impact funds, are you seeing good frameworks to help underlying investors think about that? I mean, it's all very well having an impact fund that has some nice case studies here and there. But do you think we've got past that to like someone saying, right, this is how you should really think about what we're trying to achieve here and how you should measure or try and measure the impact that we're having? So I think there's a lot of work being done to try and get to that common framework around the STGs and what can be counted, what should be counted, and a lot of LPs working together around that. But I guess it will innovate over time. And I suppose that's where the alignment comes in and that if it's not possible to achieve the impact that they wanted, what else are they doing? It sounds like that you're highlighting the UN SDG, Sustainable Development Goals, as sort of have become the common currency really for that. That's kind of what we see as well. But that's, is that fair? Yeah, yes. Although the National Trust has seven pillars that it wants to have impact on around packaging and water and you know, resource efficiency generally, which don't necessarily map directly to some of the SDGs. And there's no one fund that will will tick all of those boxes. And so it's about kind of finding themes. And if investors are backing the transition, then that's probably good enough. Even if the carbon footprint in the short term is quite high, if over the long term, the life of the fund, it has an intentionality towards a decarbonisation, then that's what we can go along with. And it all points to looking under the bonnet, as you said before. Yes, I think the due diligence is important that it's not just grand statements being made or claims in the pitch books, but it actually translates into policies that are implemented. 
And so with those sort of seven pillars, would you give those to a manager and say, look, this is the framework for managing? Or are you more saying you identified a fund that you think can address one or two of those, and then you're going to try and build a portfolio of of impact that can address the seven between them? Yeah. So we've got a fund of funds structure for the impact fund. And so the manager who's out there finding the funds on our behalf understands what these pillars are and is trying to fill them. And it's early days and some of them have been quite difficult. So when we're we're holding that manager to account, then it's really difficult to do at this point. It's interesting the prevalence of private market investments, because I, I know that people people coming to this from a probably an ignorant perspective would say, well, you know, on paper, well, I've got a lot less control there because once I'm in, I can't get back out. And so that doesn't feel comfortable in ensuring I'm aligned with sustainable development goals, with a net zero target, with whatever the sort of aims are. But I guess, how do you square that just again by knowing who you're investing with and having confidence in them? Yeah, I think you have to lean into growth a little bit and away from some of those value distressed funds. And I think single sector funds can give you some confidence that, you know, a healthcare fund is not going to go out and buy an oil company. So you can get confidence around that. And the use of legal agreements and excuse clauses on particular deals, more managers are open to that now, I think, as they realise that people do have their own values that they want some legal protection around. Yeah. Now, it's interesting the, the question you raised, Mary, about public versus private markets there, actually, because, of course, public markets, there's a lot more disclosure, obviously, around it. And you can almost see that in certainly the case of emissions and climate, things going a bit more towards public markets. But from what you're saying, Victoria, for very specific impacts, it's for some reason the private markets that can really address that a bit more specifically for whatever reason. Is that, have I got that roughly right, would you say? Yes, I think we want to provide primary capital to catalyze right, the solution. Right, yeah, and I think yeah. buying and selling shares in the in the secondary market might look good on paper, but you're not actually changing anything. And so when we're trying to to catalyze innovation to solve some of these big problems, we wanted to do it in venture and kind of take that risk capital and try and do something with that, which is why I think it needs to be there with a much longer time horizon to allow the manager to have it play out. Yeah. And I guess, as we've had, to be honest, from most of our institutional investors, there is a long time frame, I guess, when you're investing charitable assets. So I guess pivoting slightly from the sort of very long-term strategic conversation, what sort of thing on a sort of 12-month type basis, what are you most excited or nervous or, or worried about for endowments in the next 12 months? So I think for the National Trust with its real climate focus, then coming up to COP26 is really exciting with all the innovations that are coming out there a whole load more net zero ambitions being stated and the innovation that we're seeing in the types of products coming and the managers aligning with that is really exciting. So that's one of the things, I mean, obviously inflation and what it means for spend and COVID impact on the operation of the of the business as well as the portfolio is critical, but kind of just keeping on that ESG theme. I think that is one of the things that we'll, we'll see a real step up in, in the climate ambitions this year. Yeah, and I guess... There is obviously the sorting through the kind of greenwashing from the green wishing from the real kind of action, which I guess is is as important as ever, maybe more important than ever, given volume of stuff coming through. It's kind of what it's great. There's so much focus, but you know there needs to be a bit of a grown up lens on on what's actually real. Yeah, I think having short term targets, uh, medium, and then you know going out to 2050 or wherever it is, and holding people to account for the journey that they're on, getting there, recognizing that today it won't be perfect but you have to at least start doing something for the companies. And this is where for us, as a fairly small endowment in the grand scheme of things, working with the institutional investors 
group on climate change and asset owner coalitions, people who are really thoughtful and just kind of tagging along to their good work and supporting it from afar is really effective to send that message of this is what the allocators of capital want. You know, we're with them. Yeah. Yeah. That's one thing that's really struck me, actually, about this particular movement, how the sort of collective endeavor piece and, and, and particularly on the climate, some of these sort of nonprofit making organizations that have, have developed some of this work. And it's also often people's spare time who've put, plowed an incredible amount of resource and, and thought into it. And some of the stuff there that's available to people to coalesce around is pretty remarkable, isn't it? The quality of it. Yeah, the Transition Pathway Initiative or Science Based Targets, all those kind of things that we can support from afar the Climate Action 100 Plus framework, those kind of indicators that we don't give to companies, but managers can give to companies and say, this is what your investors are looking for you to do and have that agreed so that it's not pulling them in 100 different directions. One comment I've heard in terms of all of these organisations popping up, and there are so many of them, it sort of feels like there's a new announcement every every week and some weeks it's every day. And one sort of reaction I've heard is that there are so many of them that it's difficult for investment managers, for example, to know which to align to. Do you have any views on on that remark? You know, is it just all of this is helpful or actually would it be more powerful to have fewer, slightly more consistent and focused groups? Should investors attach themselves to all of them because they're all doing generally good work or I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so we've um, just gone through the stewardship reports of a number of managers who are members of the Investor Forum and counted I think 120 different groups and initiatives and you know things that they can sign up to across all asset classes and across the various ESG themes. But that's pulling a lot of resources a lot of different ways. And I think in climate, yes, everybody's trying to do something. And I think there is a need to get behind one. And I think Mark Carney is trying to do that. And the closer we get, the more announcements that we'll see. But But so long as at the end of the day, they're actually achieving something, I don't think it matters which one you get behind. Yeah, it's a process, maybe, I suppose, maybe, I don't know, natural selection or something, you've got to start with a kind of a big load and we'll sort of hopefully either coalesce them and or, yeah, they get sort of sorted out. So as we start to get towards the end of our conversation, Victoria, what do you think is the one thing you'd like listeners to take away from this discussion? So I think recognising the power that investing in the financial markets can have to influence change, no matter how big you are is something that I think people can underestimate, that you can be a shareholder or you can just be a client and still have the ability to have proper conversations that will project your views and values and cause change. And using that power mindfully and effectively can be really positive. And the more people that start having those conversations, I think the more we can shift away from shareholder primacy, you know, performance and profits at all costs towards a more inclusive stakeholder model which is about that long-term sustainability that we need. Yeah, what a lovely comment to wrap up on. I couldn't agree more. And I think that we've really on a, we've had an accelerated journey, haven't we, over the last couple of years about people recognizing that more and more. But I, I think you're right. It's still very underappreciated the power that the financial marketplace has in allocating capital and, and what happens in the real world. It's so interesting. Well, I mean, our next question was going to be what's most underappreciated about investing, but it feels like you've, you've already answered that as well in terms of the power. But any other thoughts there on what's underappreciated? So I think the flexibility for endowments can sometimes be underappreciated. Not having any liabilities and having a different set of stakeholders really does free you to take some kind of bold and brave decisions if you want to. And moving away from benchmarks and relative performance and being able to take more and different types of risk, be that backing managers or you know just responding to the market more flexibly. So I think for what differentiates endowments, people don't always realise that they can do that. That's really interesting. And I hadn't thought of it from that angle before. 
So Victoria, finally from from us, do you have any recommendations for the listeners, books, TV shows, podcasts, that sort of thing? So there's a podcast that I listen to called Talking Responsibly, which is run by Adam Matthews. You know him from the church pensioners and various guests, which talking about diversity and what the fund managers are doing. So in terms of getting in some insight into what goes on at these managers, I think that's really good. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant, actually. So we had Adam's co-host on the podcast uh, a couple of months ago, David Hickey, had a great episode with him on about net zero. But yeah, I mean, I, I recommend that podcast all the time. It's some great conversations there with managers. Really, really good. Yeah. And I've recently bought, well, this week, Marianne Seagut's book called The Authority Gap, which is looking at why women are taken less seriously, because I think within the investment industry still, the voices around the committee room tables still tend to be male. And I think that this is going to be an interesting study on why that is and what we can, what I can do about that. Brilliant. Well, we'll definitely share that and I'll be downloading that one onto my Kindle. Dan, if it's okay, I actually had a recommendation just listening to Victoria. Over lockdown, I've got a bit more into podcast listening and I've been listening to a lot of Desert Island Discs. And there was actually an episode with Hilary McGrady of the National Trust. I think it was late last year, which was really fascinating in the history of the National Trust. Just as Victoria was speaking about the way that the endowment is invested, it just made me think of it. So I would really recommend that particular episode, but generally Desert Island Discs, I think are fantastic. Super. We'll put it in the show notes. Well, then, Victoria, it's been an absolutely great conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. Yes, great. Thank you very much. Thanks, Victoria. So joining us to debrief on that really interesting chat with Victoria Sant is Kevin Frisbee, who's a fellow partner in the investment team here at LCP and does a lot of work with our endowment clients. So Kevin, welcome. Hi, Mary. Hi, Dan. Hi, Kevin. Really interesting conversation that, wasn't it? How would you reflect on that, you know, in the context of the work you do with other endowments? Yeah, I think oh, it was really interesting to hear from Victoria. I think a sort of overarching comment would be that in the various areas she's describing, I would say that endowments are a bit ahead of the game in terms of things like ESG. They certainly have been talking about it for a long time. I think that. Just recently, no surprise to hear that there has been more of a focus on things like climate change, which they've really sharpened up on that area. But generally speaking, they have been talking about ESG for a number of years. And Kevin, when I guess when we think about the the particular drivers for thinking about ESG, I guess you've got different endowments that have particular charitable purposes. Have you found that Typically, there's been a quite a narrow focus within the ESG considerations, or is it a kind of actually because we have a charitable aim, we see the value in all aspects of ESG? Some of it has been relatively narrow in the past. So I suppose the classic one is that we advise a number of health charities and they've had exclusions for the likes of, of tobacco and such. And that's that's a clear thing, not in terms of generating returns, but avoiding reputational risk. But as I say, it has broadened out now and they're wrestling with climate change, I suppose, partly from a reputational standpoint. And certainly that was the case with Victoria talking about the the National Trust, but perhaps in terms of wrestling with risk and return as well. So that has been a key thing. On that risk and return point, Kevin, how do you how do you try and square that away? I mean, it's sort of you can characterize a lot of our work sometimes. We have these models that can show you that your expected return is going to be four point five six percent, and your your risk is going to be ten point two nine sort of thing. And and clearly, you can't make impact work in that same framework, right? So how do you how do you try and sort of grapple with that yourself when when you're working with clients? I think the one thing in terms of exclusions. 
the way we try to help clients is we can list a whole series of typical exclusions. They could be sort of gambling, tobacco, controversial weapons and the like. I think one useful thing is to show clients, by the way, this is a percentage of the index that you'll be excluding if you choose that. I think that's really helpful because actually if you had quite a broad level of exclusions, you're really still only talking about between 5 and 10% of the overall market. And therefore, that does give comfort to clients in thinking that they can still generate, they can still have a reasonably well-diversified portfolio, even with those exclusions, which I think does help. Kevin, were there any other sort of key observations that you took from the chat we had with Victoria? Yeah, definitely. I think one thing which really chimed with me, which was she was concerned about investing in a blind pool of assets. And I think one interesting point is that if you are a charity and if you're partnering with one of the main charity managers, you might be surprised to learn that you can actually have a segregated arrangement for the traditional assets of, for example, equities and fixed income. When you're relatively small, obviously the if you're talking about the National Trust and the Wellcome Trust, they're very large. But if you are smaller, you can still go to a charity manager and have a segregated arrangement. So I think that does get away from that concern about the blind pool. So you can get more precision in terms of your screening. You can get great visibility of the holdings and also visibility of the actual engagement that's, un- that's being undertaken. And lastly, you can get more flexibility. You know that you're with a manager who could move with the times and move with a changing in your uh, your actual policy. So I think that can be really helpful for charities. And you, you talked a little bit there about exclusions. I mean, is that the go-to sort of tool there to use? I mean, the other argument you could obviously make is a case for trying to engage and actually transform companies. But I guess that can be difficult if you don't think you've got the scale or if the managers you're using are not going to engage in that way. Well, I think that what I was just going to come on to the other point that Victoria mentioned, which is about beliefs. And I think that does bring into focus this discussion about exclusion versus engagement. And I I think when you're doing that, if you talk to the managers about the process that they go through, it does bring to life various ways of approaching it. I myself, I'm not really in the camp of saying, oh, you, you must divest, certainly when it comes to elements like climate change. I think it's really useful to get the manager in and talk about concrete examples of saying, look, we have engaged for many years with this, say, oil and gas company and look at the impact that it's had. And therefore, I think it does help the trustees of the charity to decide on all these various topics about what is their actual policy. Should we divest and really should we move away from the table or do you still want to have a stake at the table and be able to know that the manager is engaging on your behalf. And what came across really strongly to me was the importance of being aligned with managers in the way that they think about markets and assets and these risks. And of course, that's not, to your point earlier, Kevin, it's not restricted to the largest schemes or the largest endowments. Any investor can ensure that they're aligned in their beliefs with the managers that they partner with. Absolutely. So the really good thing is that if you have a clear set of beliefs and if you pick the right partners, you can actually get a really good outcome if you pick the right managers and have the right advice. You don't have to be you know, a billion pound charity to pull that off. 
Yeah. It was interesting, this question of public versus private assets as well, I thought. So we sort of get in that sense, there's sort of three levels. There's, you've got exclusion, you've got engagement, then you sort of have the impact piece. And Victoria's point was that on the impact side, you're aiming more on the primary capital being the driver there, which kind of sort of has to point you towards private markets in most cases. Did you see that as well, Kevin, as a more general thing? Oh, absolutely. So we've discussed impact investing with a number of charities. And they would really concur. They say that the real strength of private markets is you are allocating primary capital directly in the right direction, putting that money in the ground to good effect. So I really heartily concur with that. The weakness of private markets is that illiquidity. And therefore, you really need to be sure that you've picked the right partner because it'd be a five or 10 year commitment. But again, I think Victoria made a good point. Do your homework, engage with the manager first. And if you pick one with a relatively narrow sort of sector focus, then I think you, you shouldn't go wrong. Touch wood that they will stick to their knitting and, and carry on in that particular sector. So, yes, yeah, strengths and weaknesses with private markets. But certainly if you're very keen on making an impact, then I think you'd be encouraged to look at those private markets. And was there anything that surprised you that she said, or was everything fairly aligned with what you'd expect from a charity investor? I was really sort of nodding and agreeing with most of the things that Victoria said. And certainly when it continuing with the impact, she mentioned her seven pillars, which is the way that they define impact. And we have actually had a charity which has not described it as seven pillars, but certainly has got a very strong view on impact. But again, to Dan's point, I think that what we found was the common currency between a particular charity and the market as a whole was using these UN Sustainable Development Goals. So we were able to group the pillars, as it were, into those SDGs, go out to the marketplace and say, can you please slice up your mission into those? And we can try to match up the client's requirements with what's in the market. So that's worked really well. And all of the managers that we contacted were more than happy to use that currency, as it were. And that was really helpful in terms of filtering down the entire market to the ones that best fitted the charity. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because it really feels like that's gaining ground as a framework for impact investing, even though I don't think it was set out with the intention of investing at its heart, right? So it's it's had a few issues in that sense, but it, it does seem to have really worked. It has really worked. If you look, I think there's a, you know about a 20 plus. So there is a reasonable amount of granularity in those SDGs. So they do work really well for that purpose. Yeah, I've, I found that when I've looked through them, they are quite granular, aren't they? And, you, and you've really got to, I guess, focus on picking a small number. Otherwise, you really could just be going off in all sorts of different directions. Cool. Well, Kevin, thanks so much for helping debrief on that conversation. That's been great. Thanks so much. Okay. Pleasure. Thanks, then. Thanks for joining us, Kevin. And thanks for joining us, listeners. Do join us again next week for the final episode of season two. See you then. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.